Hey, surprisingly brilliant listeners, Marin here. I just wanted to let you know here at the top of the show that this episode does contain brief, non-explicit mentions of racial violence and includes extensive conversations around racial discrimination. So if that's not for you today, I just wanted you to know. Okay, let's dive in. So Greg, you're our food guy. You love a good- Sorry? You, you love a good snack is what we've learned throughout these past two seasons, yes? Greg is always eating. That is something that it's everybody delightful. knows. So yeah. I'm, I'm assuming you know what edamame is. Edamame? Yeah. Little beans? Yeah. What kind of beans? Soy? Yes. Question mark? Yes. yes. They are soybeans. Funny story about edamame beans. Oh, took my dad to a Japanese restaurant. He'd okay. never eaten that cuisine before. Takes an edamame bean whole thing in the pod, chucks it in, choo-choo-choo. And I'm like, "Uh, Dad, no, you just pop the... Okay, and then he takes a spoonful of wasabi, pops that in, just thought it was just... Yeah. (gasps) Avocado. Hilarious. Yeah, made that mistake. Your nose basically just falls off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what if I told you that that fuzzy, salty, green plant sitting on the table in front of your dad, not to be eaten whole, but to be popped out of the pod, (laughs) in addition to being a delicious Japanese appetizer, actually has changed the world. What? And more specifically, has changed medicine forever. Huh? It's an integral part of modern firefighting technology. Shut up. And the man who shepherded this soybean from being a lowly crop to being this like cornerstone of biochemistry innovation, he was a pioneer who constantly was thwarted at every turn throughout his whole life and whose legacy we have only just begun to recognize and who we're going to explore in this episode. Oh yeah, so we are going on a soybean adventure. Heck yes. Through fire, through hospital, into restaurant. Yes, you just made it so epic. (laughs) (laughs) But first, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, and people. I am Greg Foote. And I'm Merit Hunsberger. And for this episode, I am so excited to be the storyteller, which means that Greg is about to go on a mysterious soybean adventure. It's bean time, baby. (laughs) Okay, so let's set the scene. It's the 1930s. We just left the swinging 20s behind. The world is now going through the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And while Europe is reeling from the devastation of World War I, we are in something of a golden age for chemistry. Because it's not until 1932 that the American National Academy of Sciences even separates the physical sciences, this whole big grouping, into chemistry, geology, and geography, because chemistry is making so much progress. At this point, as a field, chemistry has progressed enough technically that scientists are able to make all kinds of new discoveries about what chemicals are actually making stuff up. And the main goal of chemistry has become to study these things, what structure they have and why, and most importantly, how we can recreate some of these chemicals synthetically. Yes, rather than just spotting that if someone chews some willow bark and it helps with pain, right? It's like, let's synthesize it. Let's see what that actual molecule is, that chemical is, see if we can recreate it in the lab. Ba-boom, aspirin. Totally, how can we make it in mass quantities so that it can be of use to as many people as possible? And there's this huge boom of discovery and innovation happening. I'm talking about the very first synthetic rubber, the first commercial creation of vitamin supplements, and something incredibly important, synthetic hormones. So your body has many different types of cells. And for you to function as a living organism, those cells have to work together. They have to communicate with one another. A lot of that communication is done at the level of what are called hormones. 
That was Gregory Petsko. He's a biochemist and is currently a professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. He also has a great name. He has a great name. We're going to refer to him by his full name so we can distinguish him from you. I am only referred to by my full name when uh, I do something wrong. Gregory? By my mother. That's hilarious. Okay, so he'll be Gregory, you'll be Greg. So he was saying that cells will send all kinds of signals to each other, many of them in the form of molecules called hormones. And these say, hey, I'm doing this, so you need to do that. Or like, our environment is doing this right now, so we all need to react in this way, right, on the cellular level. Hormones are a major way that our super important bodily functions are all regulated. And I think we often think of hormones as being like sex hormones. Yeah, like estrogen, testosterone, so many more types of hormones than that, though. Yes, so many more. Like we may have heard of cortisol. Mm -hmm. That's a stress hormone, regulates our body's response to stressful things. Hormones like ghrelin and leptin are in charge of how we feel hunger or fullness. Uh, what are some more? What insulin. Are some more? Insulin. We did a whole episode on that in season one. Season one. It's called the thick brown muck. It's so good. You got to go check it out. Insulin is a hormone and is completely essential to our bodily function. And actually, I don't think we covered this in that first episode, but I just think like where the words come from that we use in science are really fun. Etymology. The, exactly. The word hormone wasn't used until 1902 when two guys who were researching insulin used it to describe the stuff that controls the pancreas. Huh. We didn't include that. Huh. Thank you. So the first ever synthesis of a hormone comes in 1926. It's a molecule called thyroxine, and then it's followed by the first synthesis of insulin, which we talked about in that episode later in the 20s. Obviously huge for modern medicine. Yeah, just a little bit. Probably saved more lives or changed more lives than a lot of other things. Okay, not antibiotics, but... I was going to say, we always have that back and forth every time. (laughs) Season one, face-off, antibiotics versus insulin. (laughs) But then, all throughout the 20s and 30s, we have this exploration of important sex hormones like testosterone and estrogen and progesterone, which are all, of course, very important for another one of our episodes from earlier in this season. We've got all kinds of tie-ins to other episodes today. And we're going to keep talking about hormones, specifically sex hormones, later in this episode. But to get there, we need to back it up a little bit. We're going to go a little further back and talk about one breakthrough in particular and one person that stands out, and it's the synthesis of, uh, okay, I'm going to get this right, physostigmine. 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 Yes. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to, absolutely, you nailed it. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I've got no idea. Okay, so physostigmine is not a hormone, it's an alkaloid. And hormones and alkaloids are different. They're not the same molecule, but they're very similar structurally. And that's important because they're both really, really hard to make. And alkaloids are special because they're super fascinating to people at this time. And people are really interested in synthesizing them because they're incredibly powerful. Like just a tiny amount of them has a huge impact. What, what are they? Like, can you give me some examples of them? A boy, can I, Greg? <laughs> okay, so uh, what do we have sitting on the table in front of us right now? Cups of coffee, caffeine is an alkaloid. Okay, So are kind nic- of important. <laughs> Just a little bit. So are nicotine, morphine, cocaine, strychnine, which it's is It's all the stuff that toxin, gives you a buzz. Or takes you down a couple of notches or maybe all the way to death. Like alkaloids are extreme, let's say. But like I was saying, alkaloids, like hormones, are incredibly difficult to recreate, to synthesize. And nothing like them in terms of chemical structure had ever been synthesized before. It can get very complicated chemically to go from molecule A to molecule B, even though the two may only differ in one or two small places. But it it 
also can be because if you try to change molecule B into molecule A, instead of having that transformation go properly, you end up destroying part of molecule A or rearranging it in a way that it no longer works. These molecules are pretty sensitive. So in chemistry, Greg, we've both been at a lab bench. We're not looking at like a bottle of carbon atoms that we're working with. No, I guess not. Unless it's just full of pencils. I think, without the wood. Yeah, there you go. Without the, <laughs> without the wood. We're instead working from more complex existing compounds that you can have readily available to yeah. you and then make small changes, additions, tweaks, break it down, whatever. Yeah, it's a process. You start with A, you tweak it, you get B, you tweak it, you get C, and then eventually you get this thing you want, D. Exactly. But I think the key thing and the hard part about chemistry is that in retrospect, we can be like, oh yeah, of course, it's just A to B to C to D. But the chemist in the moment doesn't know what those intermediate steps should be. And the reason might be that there's no simple reaction to add the little piece that's missing, and you have to create that reaction. Percy Julian did that a number of times, came up with new chemical reactions to bolt something on or transform part of a molecule into something else. And that, Greg, is the name that you're going to need to remember for this episode. Percy Julian. Okay, Percy is, Julian. He the, is he the soybean master? Oh, yes, Greg. Oh, yes. He is a brilliant biochemist whose discoveries just start with physostigmine, that alkaloid we've been talking about. Nailed it again. Thank you. I'm getting better. But his career will lead on to hormones of all kinds that, like I was saying, change medicine. He is the man who will take us from the soybean to firefighting foam, but he had to fight every inch of the way for his work because he was constantly, throughout his entire life, denied resources, denied opportunities, denied professorships and teaching positions for one specific reason. A reason we will get into right after this short break. And we're back. You're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, and we've just introduced the man, the myth, Percy Julian. He's born in 1899 in Birmingham, Alabama, where he was not allowed to enter the public library or attend a well-resourced school because... Oh, is he black? He's black. His father had actually been a slave, and he is very much so currently growing up in the Jim Crow South in America, yeah. where lynchings at this point in time are still a very regular occurrence. But Percy's mother is a schoolteacher, and his family is incredibly supportive of him as he excels in school, even though the schools he's going to are still segregated schools with not nearly the resources that are available to white children in white schools. Yeah, and am I right in thinking that those schools, they had older versions of textbooks. Uh, there were way more kids in classes. Like, really, the odds are stacked against you. 100%. Multiple grades being taught the same thing, right? Really not an equal playing field. But when he graduates from high school in 1916, Percy wants more. He wants what has been denied to him so far in his life, which is the same education that his white peers have had access to. And having grown up in this very segregated openly, violently racist part of the country. He chose to stay outside of the South and to try as much as possible to put together a career. At that time, there was no northern white university, or what we call traditional white university or predominant white university. There was not a single one that had an African-American in a tenure system appointment. 
That was Professor James Anderson. He's our second expert for this episode, and he's the Dean of the College of Education at the University of Illinois, and he's a leading scholar on the history of African-American education in the United States. Which, sadly, is not a history that I'm up to speed with. I mean, gosh, we don't even really know about our own British history enough, in my opinion. Um, So just run me through kind of early 20th century North-South divide. Real quick, Greg. No. So we've got the Civil War in America, the Southern states. So what used to be the Confederacy, but then was dissolved, secedes from the United States when Abraham Lincoln says, no more slavery. And they're like, but we want slavery. And the North is the Union, the people who say, okay, we're going to stay in the United States and fight against the Confederacy. There's a Civil War, bang, bang, bang. And then we have this legacy, this aftermath that still lingers. So Prof. James Anderson just said there that even in the northern area, there were no black professors in predominantly white universities. Correct, Amundo. And I don't want anybody to think that I'm saying that northern states didn't have their issues with racism. They absolutely did. And racism was and still is a really insidious, ingrained part of all of America, no matter the geography. What I'm saying is that southern, and we're defining again south and north by the Civil War, southern states have a different history for black folks than northern states do. And so DePauw in Indiana, a technically northern state, it's still the only place that will take him. Even though there are no black people in positions of power at these institutions, they're still occasionally letting black people in as students. And this is where Percy Julian ends up. He leaves the South for better prospects in Indiana, which is in what we're calling the North. He's at a small liberal arts university called DePauw University. DePauw, having accepted black students before and accepting Percy, was considered relatively progressive, but black students were not at all treated the same. Percy is not allowed to live on campus. No place on campus will serve him food. Um, He hears about an opening in the Sigma Chi fraternity, so he gets the opportunity to live on campus. They let him into the fraternity, but only because he agrees to wait on his housemates and fire their furnace, and so he's given a room in the basement. (sighs) Right, this is the best available opportunity for him to get a higher education. It's just, yeah. It was respectable in many quarters to be a racist. And Percy Julian had to fight that. A person of his ability would normally have been recognized from the time he was a student and would have been earmarked for advancement and success. He would have been groomed the way a white chemist would have been groomed. He was treated exactly the opposite. Right, so he's up sticks from south to north. what? Did what? Up sticks, like moved. Grabbed one's wares and set out on a voyage. Amazing. Have never heard that in my life. Continue. Cool. So he's he's moved up there because he thinks this is going to be the most progressive area. He's gone to one of the most progressive universities. It accepted him as a student. Yet still, he faces huge institutional racism and societal racism within this place. And even while he's facing all of this stuff on a social level, he's also having to play catch up academically because remember he's having to learn basically twice as much twice as fast as his white counterparts because they've had access to all the fancy prerequisite education needed for all of these college classes yeah he's like a couple of years behind them at least yes but still he graduates in the standard four years having taken at the same time as his college classes remedial high school classes wow with a chemistry degree as get this valedictorian of his class which is what you guys don't have valedictorian here 
No. It's top. It's like the the person with the highest like the grades. One. Yeah. Huh. The no, we one don't. person with the highest grades. Valor. Say it again. Valor. Valedictorian. Great word. You know what the second person is? So many people are listening now and going, what, Greg? <laughs> are you mad? Uh, the second person. Salutatorian. Salutatorian. <laughs> I just think of French. Salut. Hello, Victorian. Latin, Greg. Oh, yeah, sure, of course. And this is actually really cool. This is just a fun aside. After Percy does so well at DePauw, his entire family ups and moves to Indiana. Where you mean his... up sticks? Up sticks? Sure. <laughs> his entire family ups and moves to Indiana, and his siblings go to DePauw as well. And even though they face the same rigors that Percy did, two of his brothers go on to become medical doctors, and three of his sisters earned master's degrees. Oh, awesome. This is in the 1920s, Greg, and they're children of a former slave. Yeah, this is, this is fantastic. Incredible. And that, you know, it's, yeah, the fact that it's all that family as well. But after he graduates, what world is Percy stepping out into, right? He's kind of discouraged by the world at large from pursuing a graduate education in the same way that he was from pursuing a college education. The general racist sentiment at this point is like, hey, man, you've made it this far. Be happy with what you have. Go home. I'll get lost. That's what Percy says. After initially taking up a chemistry teaching position at a historically black college, he's frustrated by the limitations still. There's still not enough funding. There's overcrowded classrooms, poorly equipped laboratories, and he can't make progress in his beloved subject that he's so passionate about, chemistry. So off to Harvard, he goes. Yes. He gets a fellowship. But this is 1922, and even though Harvard is kind of like as north as you can get in the United States, it's a northern university, it's still really not a great place to be a black person. The president of Harvard banned black students from all of the dorms, and despite this environment, Percy still did so well academically that he got his master's in a year. Wow. He stays on for another three years trying to get his PhD, but it is just not happening. Well, I mean, Think of the constant daily fight. He eventually realized that he was not going to get a PhD from Harvard because of the racial restrictions that he was running into in practice, even if they were not restrictions that were mandated by law. But day-to-day -day experiences there convinced him that it was not a good place for him and that he was going to face discrimination to the point that he probably would not be able to get his PhD. So he was pushed out. Literally, because you had to have a teaching assistantship, like to be a TA, right, to help undergrad students and teach them in order to continue your studies as a PhD student. But the university said he couldn't be a teaching assistant because white students wouldn't take a class from a black teacher. So he effectively literally couldn't finish his PhD because they wouldn't let him. That's ridiculous. And just by the way, I think we should do a whole episode on this. The first black person to get a PhD from any American university was Edward Alexander Boucher. And he received his PhD from Yale University in physics in 1876. Oh, so precedent had been set. Like Yale had given a PhD to a black student 40, 50 years prior to Percy Julian trying to get his. Uh, so why hadn't Harvard caught up. Well, in the intervening years, I can count on less than five fingers the number of black people who get PhDs in the United States. And in Percy Julian's time, it is still really hard and really rare. But Percy is not one to give up. Harvard's not going to support him. All right, we're out. Which is what he's done before, right? A wall has been there in front of him and he's gone, I've tried to climb it. The wall's still there, but I'm not giving up. 
And he's kind of changed direction and is like, where's next? And where's next is Howard University for Percy. This is a very distinguished and well-respected historically black college in the United States where he's given a lecture appointment on the chemistry faculty and he designs a whole new chemistry building and really hones his skills as an educator. So now he gets to teach the students the thing he wasn't permitted to do at Harvard. Yes, and he loves it, but he never gives up his dream of getting a PhD. He really, really, really wants this. So after two years at Howard, he gets himself a grant to study at the University of Vienna. This is the Vienna in Austria, Europe. That's correct. The one across the Atlantic Ocean. Yep. Are there soybeans in Vienna? They're coming, Greg. Okay. Uh, What's it like in Europe in terms of this this racism? Is it going to be easier for him or is he still going to be surrounded by walls? I asked James the same question. He was an individual there and they didn't necessarily carry the attitudes of the U.S. at the time. Now, without question, he probably faced some discrimination, but it seems to me that from the time that he got there, he formed the friendships and was able to work with colleagues. And so it was for him a very, very different context than what he'd experienced in the U.S., that he could work with people of different backgrounds and that he was accepted not only in their labs, but in their homes and so forth. So he was invited by fellow white students on ski trips. Nights at the opera, soirees at social houses, he learned German, and he has access to this whole level of society that he had previously always been locked out of. Oh my goodness, that must have been such a relief. To be able to live a normal life. What a radical revelation. The bar is below the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what else is really special about Vienna at this time, in 1929, when Percy arrives, is that it is the seat, the capital, if you will, of what's now being called natural products chemistry. This is what we were talking about at the top of the show, trying to figure out what compounds are in stuff and how to recreate them from the building blocks that we find in the environment around us. This is where we come back to alkaloids, those special extreme compounds that are kind of similar to hormones. Those ones that give you a buzz. Rightly or wrongly. Nicotine, caffeine. They're incredibly fiddly, tricky compounds that fascinated people, but are so difficult to synthesize. But that's the genius of a good organic chemist, is to look at a complicated structure and say, oh, I see how I can put that together from much simpler building blocks. But the building blocks have to come from somewhere. Now, again, you could make those yourself, but wouldn't it be nicer if you could just get them in quantity from nature? Uh, the building blocks and then stitch them together by some extremely clever chemistry. Well, what Percy Julian did was to recognize that a great source of building blocks for things like steroid hormones were plants. This is what really excites me about chemistry. It's this kind of puzzle, uh, you know, here's a structure that you want to make. We know what it is, right? It's been doing this thing and we've analyzed it. We know what structure it is. How the heck do we build it? Right, we need a thing that looks like this. We need a thing that looks like this. Smoosh them together with this sort of reaction. We should actually be able to make it. I love this. I know, me too, dude. It's so fun. It's so exciting. It's like the 3D real life culmination. Jenga. Jenga. Or like I was going to say algebra, Jenga, mystery, black box, like magic. Science. (laughs) Yeah, science. (laughs) So Percy does incredible work in Vienna isolating alkaloids, right? This really hard thing that people have not been able to do up until this point. And he isolates one in particular that can be used as a drug for treating pain and heart palpitations from this particular root of a plant. And he uses that work in his precious PhD. He becomes Dr. Percy Julian. Yes. And he comes back with that degree. 
to the United States. With a finger up. That's right. <laughs> exactly. I heard James telling me about how great Vienna was. And I was like, why would he want to leave that behind? But James was telling me a little bit that like he always wanted to come home. This was where he wanted to do the work. And not only just the work in chemistry, but the work to show everybody that he could do this and he belonged there. Absolutely. But also then I remembered that this is the 1930s in Europe, in Austria. It's not a great place to be a black person. It's not a great place to be a Jewish person or a gay person or a disabled person because at this point in history, Hitler is coming into power. Yeah, so there were other motivations as well. Like, you don't want to be around in that world. Getting the heck out of Dodge is probably a pretty good idea. So it makes a lot of sense that he returns triumphantly from Vienna with his PhD to Howard University, where he is now a full professor on the chemistry faculty. Awesome. And it's going great until personal drama unfolds. We get a little gossip mag here, Greg, and I want you to read this newspaper headline. Okay. This is it? Four words? It's quite short and punchy. Howard's prize letter writer. Somebody, Greg, is spilling Percy's secrets to the press, publishing private correspondence, letters that Percy has written from his time in Vienna to a personal friend. Here's what went down. Percy gets pressured by the president of Howard University to get this white faculty member to resign. Now, that's a little murky about how this all happens, but the white faculty member really holds it against Percy, and he decides to take his revenge by publishing, uh, shall we say, delicate personal correspondence in the newspaper. This is stuff about what Percy thinks about other department members. This is stuff about Percy's affair with his lab assistant's wife. This would be like having your WhatsApp conversations with your mates published for all to read. Dude, utter nightmare. It is, and it's a disaster for Percy, unfortunately. He is forced to resign from his position at Howard, not because of any professional issue. His chemistry is genius. He's a great teacher. Just because of these personal life things, which in my opinion, frankly, is nobody else's business. And he has nowhere else to go next, but back to DePauw University. The very place that he was discouraged from graduating from in the first place. Exactly. He got his undergraduate degree there, but they were like, you should be happy with this. Leave it here, bud. But he goes back, he bows and scrapes for a job because he now has his PhD. He's very qualified. He's a brilliant chemist. And they do give him one. But there's huge pushback about the fact that a black man who was recently fired is now a professor at a white school. And the school gives in to this pressure and sort of forces him into the background, puts him behind the curtains, makes him more of an invisible player behind the scenes doing research. And he's allowed to stay as long as his research grant lasts. So he's like, okay, I gotta do something pretty important to keep me afloat here. And this is where we come back around to physostigmine. Physostigmine, I'm getting so much better at it. Sure. Hey, listen, you try it, okay? Okay, so this physostamine hey. um, is an alkaloid. Yes. Right? Yes. So we're back in alkaloid land. Yep, and it's found in something called the calabar bean which is a really cool plant that I wish we could talk about because it's highly toxic and has this cool like mythical backstory. But essentially, physostamine coming from the calabar bean is a compound that can be used to treat glaucoma, huh. which is an eye condition. It's one of the leading causes of blindness in people over 60. And we know this, but we haven't been able to successfully synthesize it because it's an alkaloid. It's really tough to synthesize, but being able to would take this relatively rare natural resource and make it widely available for medical use to the general public. 
So this is a really big deal if somebody could figure out how to do this. Okay, gotcha. So this alkaloid, this physostigamine, Great job. Is in the calabar bean. You got it. Right? But you don't want to always have to get it out of the calabar bean. You want it in greater proportions. So you want to be able to uh, create it artificially Make yourself. Make it in the lab, exactly. Right? So what Percy's doing is he's basically going, okay, what do I need to start with? Which building blocks? What do I need to do to them? What's the process to end up with this synthetic, this man-made, essentially, physostigamine? Uh, that can treat this eye condition. Exactly, Greg, precisely. And so he and his research partner, this very lovely man he's brought back from Vienna to work with him at DePauw, are researching and publishing and researching and publishing all of these intermediate steps to get them eventually to exhaustive means synthetically. And they're there, they're about to publish. They've figured it out. Percy's career is riding on this. Come on, guys. And an Englishman beats them to it. Oh. His name is Robin Robertson. Robin. How dare you? But is Robin right, Greg? What? Maybe he didn't make fistotomy. Maybe he made something else. Will Percy get to keep doing chemistry? Or will he be banished from DePaul as well with nowhere else to turn? <sighs> All of this and more after our quick break. Oh, you tease. And we are back. You're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, and the year is 1935. Englishman Robin Robertson has just beaten Percy Julian to the synthesis of this incredibly important alkaloid. Scoundrel. Fiz exactly. Physostic mean. Or has he? It's nice to be first, but it's better to be right. Julian didn't seem to be first. Well, it turned out he was right. So Robin Robertson didn't present the right process to create the synthetic version of this this alkaloid. Huh, Percy did. He thought he did, and Percy actually is the one who notices that there's some things wrong with Robin's synthesized molecule. It's not quite right. So Percy is able to prove this. He's able to publish his correct structure for the synthesis of physostigmine, and it is a huge deal. I think it's kind of funny to think of from outside of this episode because like the regular person on the street wouldn't hear this and go, oh my God, physostigmine, world changing. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is for chemistry and I kind of can't emphasize it enough. It's one of the first examples of total synthesis. And I'll have you read what that means, Greg. Okay, total synthesis is the complete assembly of a complex molecule from basic chemical building blocks. So you can picture what kind of precedent this sets, right? For this first example of how we can make this incredibly complicated thing easily and at scale in a laboratory. And Gregory Petzko, a biochemist himself, puts this really well. You look at his synthetic organic chemistry and it has the characteristic of being elegant. For a scientist, that's one of the highest praises you can give another scientist, to call their work elegant. And his work was elegant, everything he did. Yeah, it's also when they say something's beautiful, like your method, your process, elegant, beautiful, because that's like an extra level of respect. It's like, not only did you did it, oh, you did it in such a stunning, satisfying way. Totally. And yeah, this, this must be a huge deal if this is the first time a molecule of this difficulty has been made from its itty bitty parts. And when people talk about Percy and his work, they really speak of him as if he is an artist. And the chemistry world sits up and takes notice of this paper. It ushers in this whole new era of chemical synthesis capabilities. But even with the strength of this work, Percy runs into more trouble. Of course, there were 
meetings that he was invited to, several of which, when they discovered that he was black, immediately then disinvited him. And in other cases, he wasn't even allowed to enter the meeting. That should have been a wake-up call to his white colleagues to protest. Scientists, for the most part, did not step up to the plate for Percy Joy. This continues to absolutely suck, doesn't it? You said that he was like hidden behind the curtain. I really hoped that DePaul would be like, hang on, one of our own has smashed it and just done this incredible thing. It's time to celebrate him, no matter the colour of his skin. You've literally just hit the nail on the head, Greg, because his mentor, a, a white faculty member on the chemistry staff at DePaul, puts Percy forward for a permanent, secure faculty position, what we now call tenure, right? Based on this groundbreaking work. And the administration denies him. This is the 30s. And it's actually not until 1945 that James Anderson, our historian of education, tells me that we see the first black tenured faculty member at a predominantly white university. So, you know, we're not even close. Not that that's an excuse that is okay, right? Like, okay, it didn't happen for another 10 years. Doesn't mean it shouldn't have happened before that. And here is an incredible opportunity and example if they need to be able to justify this first position of tenure what more grounds do they have to do that what more could you want so what do we see percy doing throughout his life uh saying fine if you won't take it i'm going elsewhere yes my dude exactly he packs up his bags once again and looks for other options elsewhere he applies at other universities is denied again after work that basically changes chemistry forever and because of this work he's actually offered an interview with the chemical company dupont now they are an absolute freaking behemoth of a chemical corporation that's responsible for many a modern miracle like nylon and rubber and all kinds of stuff only to have them contact him after and say hey uh we actually didn't know you were black so we can't we can't give you the position that so they, we offered you. So they, they actually admit it? like Correct. Like, to his to his face. Oh my goodness. I mean, this is happening all of the time. And I actually really love the way that Gregory Petsko puts this. It would have been obvious to a low-grade moron that here was a scientist of a caliber higher than probably anybody they had working for. And yet they couldn't be bothered to give him any position. And Professor James Anderson added... He could not control... The fact that he couldn't get a job in certain places, he could not control, that even he couldn't live in certain places and that kind of residential segregation. But at the same time, he was not about to let that keep him from doing all he could do in the area where he could control. And the area that he could control was the development of his mind and the development of his uh, genius. And every opportunity he got to do that, he kept going forward. Oh man, so not only is he not being accepted into university positions, uh, companies are like, yeah, oh, oh no, actually no. But he also can't live in certain places? Yes. This is 1936, and there's a place called the Institute of Paper Chemistry. It's one of his last resort options. It's in a a town in Wisconsin, which is, again, technically the North, right? So not supposed to have this legacy of slavery and yet is still so racist. And they were prepared at the Institute of Paper Chemistry to make Percy an offer to come work there. And then they were informed by their city's attorneys that there's a city law forbidding black people from living inside city limits. So that's a no-go, but there is a pinprick of light because in that meeting sat a board member who was also vice president of the Glidden Company. 
not exactly a catchy name, but it's one we need to remember. And this vice president had been looking for a sharp, brilliant chemist to run this company's new Chicago laboratory. Brilliant. Well, you've got one of them right there. Obviously, he sees Percy and he offers him the job of director of research. Yes. And this is huge, Greg. I mean, taking everything into account that we've already talked about, the fact that Percy Julian was hired as a black man to be the director of research at a laboratory is truly remarkable and really unprecedented. But if Percy Julian was a white man, uh, you'd be like, no man, that job's too kind of almost below you. Like, you should be going for this, this, or this. You're telling me, dude. And this, Greg, you will be so happy to hear is where we come back to the soybeans. Awesome. I thought for a minute your caliber beans was going to be your link to your beans. I was like, nope, I need more edamame in my life. There are many, many a vegetable in this episode, Greg. <laughs> and I don't know if our listeners are familiar with this. I was mad before I started this episode. But uh, apparently the soybean is rather a chemical powerhouse. In what way? The proteins in it are incredibly versatile and useful. They were being used in paints. What? In lubricants. In plastics. Huh. And Percy's first directive as the head of research at Glidden is to isolate this protein from the soybean, something that has never been done before at industrial scale. And just to clarify, isolating here essentially means uh, extracting, pulling out that protein from the natural stuff from the soybean. Totally. Right? So it's different to the synthesis we were talking about earlier. It's like, here's the soybean, grab out that protein, separate it out so we can study it. Exactly. Not creating a synthetic version, but separating it from its source. And of course, Percy, being the genius that he is, did this. In a little over a year, he has perfected a chemical method to pull the protein out of the soybean. And it is called, very catchily, alpha protein. That feels like it needs like a catchy jingle. Do, 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 alpha protein. Yeah, do, I know. Do, do. And it really is a superhero in its own right because it's the first vegetable protein ever produced in bulk anywhere in America. It made millions of dollars for Glidden as a new industrial paper coating, interestingly enough. And later, it would be a key ingredient in one of the first ever water-based or latex house paints. Covering your walls in soy mush. Delish. Mm. And I think what Greg Petsko has to say here about this is really funny, talking about how Percy is handling his work for Glidden at this point. They want to make other stuff along the way that they can also sell in order to make a profit. He has to satisfy that demand in order to keep his job. But, but at the same time, what he really wants to do is he wants to do this incredibly clever, beautiful organic chemistry to make these medically relevant molecules. I have no idea how he managed to, to walk that political tightrope for as long as he did. But I think we underestimate his acumen in that regard. Right. So he wants to be doing medical chemistry, yeah, uh, crafting things that are going to help people. And he's there extracting stuff from soybeans. Using that alpha protein on a commercial scale to make things like linoleum, high protein livestock feed, dog food, and key coming back to the top here, bean soup. What do you think this is, Greg? Miso soup. <laughs> this is immediately where my mind went when I first read his bio, but bean soup is what American service members called the foam fire retardant that they made out of Percy's alpha protein. All oh, right, so it's not a soup that you eat. This is this is the firefighters thing you're talking about. This the is firefighters the soup you, foam. You spray on the flame. What? And it's and it's and it's bean based. Soybean based. What? Because it just gives it loads of zhuzh. I literally have no idea. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so when World War II breaks out. 
The bean soup is used on ships and aircraft carriers and is credited with saving thousands of service members' lives during World War II. And for this, Percy starts receiving the kind of recognition that he so rightfully deserves. He's showered with awards, honorary degrees, he's sought after as a public speaker. The NAACP awards him its prestigious Springer Medal, and the Chicago Sun-Times names him Chicagoan of the Year. Okay, so this is quite different to him with his fistogdamine for uh, glycoma, right? He's worked on this alpha protein, he's extracted this, this protein from the soy, and then he's gone, oh, this creates a crack in foam? Where would this be good for? Oh, firefighters. So he still does have that life-saving aspect to his work. Yes. From the humble soybean. Yes. And although he is rightfully now being recognized, it's not like all of the problems have gone away. He moves his family into a nice reed white neighborhood in Chicago. And immediately after they move in, it gets firebombed. Luckily, no one is hurt. But somebody then sake. sets off dynamite outside his house right next to where his kids sleep. What? So it's not all sunshine and roses even after he starts to be recognized. And his children, after they grow up, actually spoke about this time in their lives a little later on. And I want you to read this quote from Percy Julian Jr. about how his dad handled all of this. Yeah, sure. I mean, the problem is, once you are being more recognized, you are more visible. And therefore, you will have more people who want to pull you back down again. Okay, here's the quote from Percy Julian's son. And actually, you know how everything has a good side? The good side was, as a kid, I got to spend more time with my dad and got to stay up late because we'd sit in the tree outside. He'd sit there with a shotgun and we'd talk about why someone would want to do this and how wrong it was and how stupid it was. Gosh, that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Hugely. And he went on to later say that he would ask his dad, is this ever going to change? And Percy would say, it will, if someone sets an example. Him being the person that is setting that example where he's standing up to these people. Trying will be lead. that sitting in a tree with a shotgun late at night. Trying to protect his family. Oof. But Percy's brilliant scientific work doesn't stop here. Because from his previous work, he knows something very special is in these legumes, these beans, these roots. Something that was totally key to our story about birth control, Greg, which would be... Uh, one of the sex hormones? Yes, sir. That would be progesterone. Or more accurately, it's a precursor to what can make progesterone. That's in soybeans. And I just want to go over again how, because he had worked so well with alkaloids, which are a really tough, thorny problem, he was able to transfer this expertise to hormones, which are different, but similar. There are molecules that are easy for chemists to make, and they've been making them for hundreds of years. And there are molecules that are brutally difficult, fiendishly difficult, one might say, for chemists to make. And steroid hormones, which are among the most important class of hormones in the entire human body are in fact fiendishly difficult to make. So even with all of his genius and expertise, it actually still takes an accident, Greg, for Percy to get to the synthesis of progesterone. Which we quite often find in the history of science. We love an accident. I love this story. So essentially, Percy, through his other work with soybeans, has a huge 100,000 gallon tank of refined soybean oil. 
He knows he can probably extract this precursor to progesterone from his soybeans, but he's trying to figure out how exactly to do it, when one day a disaster occurs in his factory and water leaks into all of this soybean oil. And the soybean oil is totally ruined, but Percy's like, wait a second, what is all this white debris in my vat of oil. And it was the precursor to progesterone? It's crystals of that progesterone precursor because it's been chemically forced out of the soybean oil by the water that accidentally got into the barrel. You know what? This is second only to the accident of when the uh, the peanut butter truck crashed into the jam. Is that a goes, real you know. story, Greg? <laughs> <laughs> Not one we would tell unsurprisingly brilliant, I don't think. <laughs> So from there, Percy develops an industrial process out of this accident for making progesterone, which leads to his company, Glidden, being the first to commercially produce progesterone in America. And we just need to go back to that birth control episode, right? For people to understand how fundamentally commercially produced progesterone changed the world. All that from the soybean. Huh. And I want to make sure we clarify here that while Percy was not the first to synthesize progesterone, right? He wasn't making it synthetically. He was the first to produce it efficiently on a huge industrial scale. There was no way to make steroid hormones in the kind of quantity that would make them useful for medicine until Percy Julian came along. And does that transfer to him doing something similar with some of the other steroid hormones? You're right there, Greg, exactly. Because now that this precedent has been established, Percy is exploring all of these avenues towards mass production of these really difficult chemicals, these hormones. He's now on the road towards potentially trying to produce a synthetic version of cortisol. Mm. The synthetic version of cortisol is called cortisone, and it is incredibly important in medicine. It's used to manage inflammation in acute injuries. So like if you have a frozen shoulder, they might like inject you with cortisone. Or if you have like a big cyst, they'll inject it with cortisone. You can use cortisone cream for eczema or allergic reactions. And developing methods for commercially producing all of these compounds, especially hormones like progesterone and cortisol, were huge races between these big companies. Because whoever got there first stood to make a heck of a lot of money. Big time. So Percy gets there first for progesterone, but there's another company neck and neck with them called Syntex, and they're hot on their heels, and they come up with their own version of progesterone and their own way of doing it. And Glidden and Syntex end up being the two big producers of progesterone in America. But then the race is on for cortisone. Again, hugely important. And Percy has found a way to create it. He goes to his bosses and says, let's do it. But Glidden, decides that the development process for steroids is too expensive and they're not going to do it anymore. Oh, no! <laughs> Percy's like, no, I was in my groove. I'm doing the thing I want to do. What? <laughs> Look, and I can do it. Here it is. Yeah, he has the way to do it. And Does he do classic Percy? Does he go elsewhere? The reg. You know our man Percy by now. Absolutely. He does not give up on things like this. He leaves Glidden in the dust at age 54. Ooh. and founds his own company. Brave. When he leaves Glidden behind, he also leaves behind 109 chemical patents for things that he developed and discovered while at Glidden that he doesn't own because he worked there when he discovered them. And one of those patents is for the compound that he told Glidden he could make for cortisone that, just like he predicted, does go on after his departure to become a key ingredient in the production of cortisone, and helping to make the drug available to millions at a reasonable price. Oh, that's always the tricky thing, isn't it? It's IP, intellectual property, uh, what you have created whilst you were being employed by somebody. So if he's left and set up his own company to try producing all sorts of stuff, 
Does that mean he can't use any of those things that are previously now owned, even though he developed them, by Glidden? Excellent freaking question. He, again, brilliant man, finds a loophole. And when he founds his company, which he calls Julian Laboratories outside of Chicago, they get huge contracts from big pharmaceutical companies to make not the end product, but the intermediates, the precursors to all of these hormones and these other chemical compounds, because Percy can make them faster and cheaper than the big companies can. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Okay, so he's still able to lead the pack. And finally, he's getting to breathe his own air, right? The director of his own company. But remember Syntex? Yep. That other company? Mm-hmm. They come out of the woodwork because just one more hurdle for Percy. They refuse to let Percy and his laboratories break into their monopoly that they have on the plants that are the source of all of these compounds that he needs to make this stuff. Just one more freaking fight that Percy has to take on, but he does. He takes them to court. So do other companies. And luckily, after an arduous legal battle, Syntex is banned from holding this monopoly, and Julian Laboratories becomes profitable in its business and ends up employing more black chemists than any other facility in America. Because he's like, hey, I know the persecution. I've, I've lived through it. I'm probably still experiencing a bit of it. Please come here, work for me, let's do great stuff. And while Percy's scientific legacy and legacy in the fight for racial equity has taken me a whole episode to try and do justice to Greg, our expert Gregory Petsko puts it really well when he's describing Percy's impact. If Percy Julian had not lived or had not been able, and it took extraordinary struggles and determination on his part to do this, I think we would have been maybe at least 10 years, possibly more, behind in the medical applications of steroid hormones. And that means a decade or more of people with crippling arthritis, with all kinds of severe skin, bone, muscular conditions, and pretty rapidly after that, reproductive issues as well, who could have been helped by those hormones, but wouldn't have been because they weren't yet around. That's quite a legacy, improving lives for 10 plus years that wouldn't have been improved had he not constantly fought and battled and sidestepped and done incredible, incredible chemistry. And even though his work changed chemistry and medicine and, funnily enough, everything from firefighting to paint to dog food forever, here's how Percy himself reflected on his life's work in his autobiography. And I'll have you read this quote, Greg. Well, this feels like quite an honor to read his words. Okay, here we go. I feel that my own good country robbed me of the chance for some of the great experiences that I would have liked to live through. Instead, I took a job where I could get one, and I tried to make the best of it. I have been, perhaps, a good chemist, but not the chemist that I dreamed of being. Wow. I mean, he was an incredible chemist, and he had a heck of an impact. What he's essentially saying here is, imagine if I didn't have those barriers those walls after walls after walls after walls. And both Gregory and James, who I spoke with for this episode, said the same thing. Like, imagine what Percy Julian may have been able to accomplish if society hadn't hindered him as much as it did. And now I want to close this episode, Greg, by looking to the future, as we always do. And on the scientific side, just like we were talking about, you and I got really jazzed about chemistry earlier because it's really cool. And fortunately, this golden age of discovery is still not yet over. There are so many more discoveries to be made. There's a, the 
Mustang Mountains of Papua New Guinea, for example, are a virtual treasure trove of molecules that people are just beginning to really understand and exploit. So it's gotten more sophisticated, but fundamentally, the thought processes aren't all that different. The mountains of Papua New Guinea are a treasure trove, right? So what, there's these plants there and they have properties and you've got to work out, like first you've got to isolate them, then you've got to synthesize them. And then also you might be able to use them as building blocks to make other stuff. So exciting. Just waiting to be discovered and used for the good of the planet and people by the next Percy Julian, right? And on the social side, things are better. It's more likely that someone like Percy Julian could make more progress today, but these issues are certainly not gone. And here's James Anderson. You begin to understand that someone of that genius can be very much restricted by the institutions and the attitudes uh, and dispositions in the larger society. Things have not changed dramatically. I know here at the University of Illinois, uh, where I am, the first two African-Americans that were employed here came in 1964. We still have not just racism, but also sexism in this country. When I was a student in the 1960s, I knew extremely talented women chemists who didn't want to go into synthetic organic chemistry because of fear of dying from testosterone poisoning. And I don't mean in the chemical lab. I mean from fear of literally having their careers destroyed by the dominant egotistical male ethos that the field had in those days. And when you add that to what black people went through, it's extraordinary to me how much we lost by trying to solve 100% of our problems with something like 40%, 30% of our brain power. Yeah, he puts that wonderfully. Um, it's why it's so important to look back and to raise people up and to recognize and to learn from, but at the same time to acknowledge, as you've said, we are not there yet. There is still a long way to go. And I really hope that telling stories like Percy Julian's, which is extraordinary and heartbreaking in so many ways, will help us get there. And by reflecting on the mistakes that we've made in the past, it will help us build a better future where more minds, more diverse perspectives can help us make more amazing discoveries. And unlock so much potential and not block so much potential. Unlock the future! Wow, that was, that was um, an amazing, amazing story. Thank you. I learned a heck of a lot as well. Me too. Next time you're at a Japanese restaurant, Greg, you better bring up Percy Julian. Sure, deal. And remember, Dad, pop the beans out before you scoff them, okay? Thank you so much for listening, Greg. It is time to roll our credits. So if you listeners want to learn more about Percy Julian and his story, his amazing life and work, then I recommend you check out the documentary Forgotten Genius from Nova. And if you want to learn more about the discrimination and inequality that people still face in academia and science today, you can check out the multitude of accounts that I will leave in the show notes. Today's experts were Professors James Anderson and Gregory Petsko. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise in this story. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. We say that every time, uh, but it does genuinely really, really help. So yes, please do go and rate and review us. Thanks. And if you can think of anybody else who might enjoy this episode, please do spread the word about Surprisingly Brilliant, anyone who you think would like to listen. And Marin. Yes, Greg? 
do you realise that that brings us to the end of season two? This is our last episode. Yeah. You're right. We did 14 brand new episodes of Surprisingly Brilliant. Oh, it's been such a wild ride so this season. I've learned a ton. Oh, so have I. I've really, really enjoyed it. And what I loved was taking lots of your listener suggestions for these stories as well and just getting time to explore them and tell them. Hopefully, we'll be back with more. That's our hope, fingers crossed. Let us know what your favorite episode was and let us know if you have recommendations for more. We'll let you know how to get in touch with us in a little bit. But first... Uh, Please do subscribe. Go back and listen to any that you've missed. Share them with your buddies. And like we always say, and we absolutely do read these, if you've got a story from science history that you'd like us to tell or a discovery or an invention you'd like to know the story behind, email us at brilliantatseeker.com. And if we do a season three, it might be part of it. And if you want to get in touch with us on social media, talk with us about any of the things we've talked about in the past two seasons, or float us an idea for the third season, you can get in touch with us on social media. I'm Marin Hunsberger, available at Marin B on Instagram, B-E-A, and at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter. And I am Greg Foot on Twitter and Instagram, just at Greg Foot. Come say hi. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. This episode was written by me, Marin Hunsberger, and my brilliant co-host is Greg Foote. Our producer for this episode was Sylvia Lazarus. This episode was edited by Lucas Bollinger. We had support from the team at Seeker, including Caroline Roth, Jessica Young, Megan Bates, and Megan Fu, and from the Group 9 podcast team, including supervising producer Emily Feld. The show's executive producers are me, Greg, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangish Hedekutter. And you can find more about Seeker at Seeker.com. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully we'll speak to you soon. ta Bye.